Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 80 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions' industry-leading Evo shared storage servers come with a perfect suite of core features you'll love, like built-in media asset management and powerful integrations for Adobe, Resolve, Avid, and FCP10. They've even made it easier to work from home with their new remote editing tool, Nomad. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and sign up for a demo today. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Amy Overbeck. Amy has worked on several TV shows, including Random One, Stolen Voices Buried Secrets, and multiple episodes of the series Nightmare Next Door. She's also edited numerous documentary features, including Perfect Valor, Rock Prophecies, and Nine Days to Change the World. Today, we're discussing a fantastic documentary that I thoroughly enjoyed called The Biggest Little Farm. It's on Hulu, and I highly recommend it. Once I saw it, I had to talk to the editor. Amy and I began our discussion with the opening narration, which at first sounds like a soundbite from an interview, but ends up being voiceover that runs through the documentary from John Chester, the filmmaker himself, who is also one of the subjects of the film. The VOE approached to be conversational, so it was kind of almost like an inner monologue kind of thing going on. He definitely was aiming for it to be conversational, but it wasn't recorded in an interview format, so we would write those lines. And were you writing those lines kind of as you went, like, oh, you know what, I need a bridge here, or was it more thought out ahead of time more than that? Yeah, it was very much in the moment when we were working on it. We were working completely unscripted, but the way these kind of scenes are is that it's like verite and like animal moments or the scene is what it is, right? And so I would cut together the scene from the footage and then I would see, well, what more do we have to explain here for the audience or what kind of bridge do we need to get to the next subject? And I would put like a title card on the screen um, with like a suggestion about the direction for the VO. And then he would come in and we would talk it through and we would just kind of riff and write the lines right there in the moment and then he would hop in the VO booth next to me and record it and I'd pop it in the cut and then we'd see like is it working sometimes on paper like it works better than when you actually see it in the cut and we'd kind of fiddle with it he'd record some more takes and we'd work on it that way so yeah it was, it was very much like in the moment so on a given day we might record like five different VOs or 10 or nothing um, it was just all depending on like what the scene we were working on at the time needed makes me think that Walter Murch said every documentary editor should get credit as the writer. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt a part of it. I was really fortunate that we had a great relationship of working through, you know, what was needed in the edit. And I felt very much a part of telling the story. This kind of verite really, um, the scene itself is, is writing itself, you know, in the edit. We really just had ideas of scenes that we were lining up, but then the details of how that scene would play out was all up to like how I decided to put it together in the edit and how we worked together to weave that into a larger film. What was the schedule like? The film takes place over several years, multiple years. What was your schedule like as an editor? They got the farm in 2011 and I didn't come in until 2017. And so I was there for about a year and a half. And then I would say another 
maybe six months of remote editing um, when I moved back home. So doing the end credit scenes or some very final tweaks. Um, so it was about two years in total. But I I was able to keep a pretty regular schedule of nine or 10 hour days and five days a week. So I had to kind of work around John's farm schedule as well, since he was trying to be a farmer and a filmmaker at the same time. Like I did a Sunday through Thursday schedule so that he could have time to balance focusing on the film and focusing on the farm. So I know it was a, it was a tough balance for him, but we made it work. And, you know, all along we were aiming to submit for Telluride as our first deadlines and we met it. So we kept our schedule pretty tightly from the start. And he'd been gathering information for those couple of years from 11 to 17 or when you started or? Well, when he started, he had no idea that he was going to continue making films at all. He knew, I think, that it was an interesting subject, but when they were in the thick of like having a really barren farm that they had to bring back to life, I mean, I think it was a little too daunting to think that he would try and make a film at the same time. But as he went along, he kind of, you know, got to know the characters of the farm. And so he did smaller um, shorts for Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. So he did like Emma the Pig and Greasy. He did Emma's Sickness and a few other ones. And he won Emmys for them and they did great. And so that kind of gave him the confidence that he could really make a film out of this as a whole. And so around year five is when he really started documenting the farm with the intention of making a whole film about the entire farm. So luckily he had been documenting small things along, but he didn't really get serious about it, I guess, until he brought me in in 2017. What did you um, temp score with? We started with a fair amount of planet Earth and some like random YouTube stuff that we would find. I mean, we knew that we wanted it to be cinematic, but what we were temping with was not quite on the level where Jeff Beale took it when he scored it. And I think some of that comes with confidence for both John and myself and in like what we can pull off. We had moments where we were making it more cinematic and then others where we were kind of holding it back probably. But Jeff really took it to a new level with his score beyond what we were originally intending, I guess you could say. But he kind of proved to us that it had earned that and it really made it more, much more theatrical and made it a film that I think people watch and don't necessarily always think that it's a documentary because it, you know it becomes very much like a scripted film and the and the music's kind of telling you that too um so i think it really benefited from that were those decisions about the cinematicness of the music or you know, the more toned down stuff was that a question of tone that you guys were both discussing about where it needed to what it needed to feel like we both approach it where you know if you're going to have music we don't want it to just be background music you know we want it to serve a purpose in the in the scene because why do you have it if you're not letting it help you punctuate a moment or something? So, you know, we chose tracks with that in mind. I mean, I think there were certain moments in the film where we definitely felt like it was going to be a big musical moment and, and let the music carry that emotion through. You know, the way I edit a lot of scenes that I know are going to have music is I bring in the music pretty early to let it set the tone for me and help me help guide me on how quick my edits should be and things like that. But really Jeff's music didn't come in. He only had six weeks to do it at the very end. So I was working with temp all the way through and he, he was really working on it probably when I was um, in picture lock, I was just finalizing the edit 
when he was starting. So he had, you know, my temp track to guide him, but I, I couldn't really mess with the edit <laughs> too much to, to help um, accommodate where he was taking it. But he was really great about finding new moments of emphasis that we never thought of. And it just worked really well. But, but yeah, we, overall, I'd say we really use the music to help because especially for the, like those more planet earth kind of moments, um, when you don't have VO or dialogue really telling you anything about it, it's really just the dance of the characters and the music that's telling you where this is going. So it was a big part of it for sure. Talk about the storytelling of it. Structurally, you start at the end, <laughs> right? You start with a fire. Because uh, for those of you, uh, you know, for anybody that hasn't seen the film, basically most people know that there were horrible fires in California that threatened this farm. And so we start with that. Then you jump back and then you jump back further. I can't remember what the exact structure was. How did you determine how you were going to tell the story? We knew that in order to get into the backstory of how they got to the farm, you need an idea of where this is going and and curiosity for how they got to this point in the first place, right? If we just start off with them in LA, it might feel like, well, why should we care about these people? Who are they? You know, you just don't maybe have enough to go on to really care about anything. So we wanted to kind of tease out where this was going. And our original plan was to start off the whole film with kind of like a utopian farm dream kind of scene of like this magical, amazing farm, and then go into the backstory. But then when the fires came, I was editing the film. It was the Thomas fire and then two other fires coming at us. And it was, I mean, he thought that the barn where I worked was going to burn down. It was, it was a really dramatic time. And so, and to be at a point where they had built that farm from nothing and it was this flourishing ecosystem to have, you know, one day a fire could just completely take that away was like really pretty shocking. So we thought that it was a really dynamic way of getting that point across pretty quickly that they are going to get to this point where they've built something amazing, but it could all be taken away in a second and appreciation for that. Um, so it felt like a good place to start to create that curiosity to move it forward. And then, you know, our backstory had, since they weren't planning on documenting their journey, our backstory, you know, just had so much iPhone footage and everything. And we wanted people to know that this was going to be a beautiful film and not just somebody's home videos. So um, that was kind of part of it too. But, but yeah, there's a lot of different reasons, I guess, that went into that. So at the same time that Molly's trying to throw all her stuff into a car and gather up her son to escape the fires, you're also trying to evacuate with your edit system and media? Yeah, he had me take my computer home with me. And I was like, I don't know where I'm going with this. We couldn't take our server home, but luckily we had LTO backups all over the place. But yeah, it was scary. I think I maybe had a drive of like some proxy files. It was pretty scary there for a minute. And it, it was really, really unique in that way too, because I was living the experience that I'm also telling in the film. <laughs> so that was really unique to be in the middle of that and then trying to tell that story. And then you feel that story so much more and you you feel like, you know, in some ways you're telling your own story. So it was really important to have that kind of understanding of all of it, I think. What were you cutting in? We were in Premiere. I started in Avid years ago. Then I moved to Final Cut and I worked at Post Houses where I had to switch between both in, in a given day. And so my keyboard is like the same wherever I go. Um, and then it really wasn't until this project that I um, used Premiere um, extensively 
but I was a big fan of Final Cut in the way it, it's directly connected to your files and and not um, you know creating the MXF files and everything that gets to me. It's um, with Avid, it's just difficult to wrap my brain around all of my moving pieces <laughs> that are on the hard drives and how to handle that. And so I was happy to go back to Premiere to having that kind of system. I never adopted um, Final Cut X or any of that. So I was like a Final Cut 7 person. So it, it was pretty familiar to get into Premiere. And then the media browser workflow really benefited us on this project since we had so much media that we wanted to access but not have immediately available in our project. So that proved to be a really easy way of searching footage and, and bringing stuff in. As you mentioned, some of the cinematography is just gorgeous. And then there's a lot of uh, cell phone footage. Was there any concern about cutting between those and the transitions between cell phone and whatever he used to shoot the rest of it that looked so beautiful? I mean, there was, you know, our, our backstory um, had a lot of older iPhone footage where, you know, it was like four by three. <laughs> it was pretty rough there, but, you know, it was a necessity. You know, how are we going to tell the story of Todd if we aren't going to, you know, just go for it and use that iPhone footage that they shot of him because they weren't planning on documenting. So it was just what we had to do. And as we went along, you know, when once they got to the farm too, they were, some things don't happen when you have the Amira set up. You know, it's just something when John's walking around at night and finds a dead chicken, you know, he has his phone and that's all he has. And I think that's what really makes it real, you know, in a lot of ways for people that that's the new home video, right? And I think people are clued into that, maybe even subconsciously, where, you know, when you see something that's obvious that it's iPhone, you know, maybe that emphasizes that this really happened and in the moment. But there were scenes too, where we had great iPhone footage from that scene, while there was also great Amira footage from the scene, and we had to try and blend the two. <laughs> Our colorist, Walter Volpato, he was very sweet about it, but he was also <laughs> hating us um, because he had to make, you know, an Amira and an iPhone shot look like they're all part of the same scene without <laughs> pulling people out of the moment. It was a process, but, you know, he made it all look beautiful. And I think the scenes where we did that, most people probably can't pick them out so well. And we're lucky a lot of phones now are shooting at much higher quality. So it's getting easier, but he's telling us to not shoot iPhone. <laughs> but <you> know, <laughs> it's just the way it happens sometimes, you know, on, on when you're documenting reality, you don't always have a huge camera on your shoulder. So yeah, I'm friends with Walter on Facebook. And I think that's actually how I found you is I got, I got on Facebook and I said, I just watched the greatest little documentary and this just was, and he goes, yeah, the color correction on that was a, a labor of love, I think he put it. Yeah, I mean, and over the years, you know, on the farm, they had so many different formats, cameras with back focus issues and, you know, all kinds of different things coming at him um, that he had to make all look cohesive. But yeah, he did a really great job cleaning it all up and making it look amazing because you don't want it to draw you out of the moment it's okay sometimes for people to realize hey this is iphone footage so they've been gathering some stuff for a couple of years before you got on the project how did you start approaching the documentary as individual scenes just i don't know how this is going to work but let's do emma the pig or let's do coyotes slaughtering chickens or since john started with the oprah super soul sunday um shorts that he had done i had a couple of scenes that were at least attempted in advance. The style of those shorts 
ended up being a little bit different than the film. So I had to adjust those edits, but at least he knew that those stories were worth telling and they were engaging and people really loved them. So that was all I had to start with. And then when I got there, we had basically just walls full of cards everywhere. And it was all in order of how they wanted to tell the film, but it was it was a lot. <laughs> it was like easily four very large bulletin boards just completely filled with cards because they had so much happen over the years. And so we kind of just had to tackle it act by act and kind of break it down into years. Organizationally, for the edit, we had um, subject-based string outs of all the usable shots for any given subject. So we had over 75 subjects and we called them fat cuts. So we had a fat cut for cows and a fat cut for chickens and a fat cut just for Emma and, you know, all of these things. So when I needed footage of one of those, I would um, use Media Browser, go through, dig into the project and pull up the, the fat cut sequence. And then I would find the shoot on the timeline and then I could scrub through all these well shots from that shoot. And then were you using something like pancake timeline function or something? How are you getting your fat cut into a into an edited sequence? I tried the pancake method for a little bit. I felt like I was running out of screen real estate a little bit with that. I like to use one monitor, like a one like 30 inch. So at times that would work for me, but other times I was just copying and pasting basically from my in and in my out. I would put an in and out in the fat cut and then copy that and bring it over into my cut and then paste it into my cut. Luckily with Premiere, you know, your sequence that you opened from media browser goes into your source monitor. So it makes it a little bit easier to still look at your main film sequence in your program monitor to kind of know where this is going in your timeline. So that worked out pretty well. Basically using the fat cut as a source. Yeah, exactly. And when there's so many shoots, like I'm just not a fan of clicking through every individual clip and to have them trimmed down to like the usable bits in the timeline was just really helpful. But that said, you know, we would have like 14 hours of cows <laughs> and you had to, you know, go find the shoot that you were remembering a random shot from and where was that on the timeline and and go from there. But overall, I'd say it was a good system. And then we had all of our fat cuts um, also loaded into Frame.io so that we kind of had a cloud catalog, I guess you could call it. So if John had an idea of a shot that he was really wanting to use or something, he could go find that. Even if he's walking around the farm or something, he could go look in Frame.io and find that shot and post a little comment for me. And then I, I would see the time code and go into that fat cut and know exactly what he's talking about. How closely did your end edit seem to what was on those boards around the, the barn? I would say fairly close. I mean, within like, there were definitely sections of stories that we used, but ultimately the structure changed a ton. We narrowed down, I would say quite a bit. It really was like starting from scratch and, and unscripted. I mean, we kind of discussed through all of those cards on the fly to create our act one and our act two and our act three. And, and there were days with act two where we would just stare at the board for an entire day, like rejiggering scenes. And then I'd quickly like shuffle them around in my timeline to get an idea of if that was possible and talking through like the ripple effects of one little change would send off everything on the rest of the timeline. And is it really worth it? And is it going to screw up things later? Is it, you know, something that's worth doing? And so we would play around with that a lot, just reimagining what it could be um, to see where it would go from there. So 
It was a big part of our process. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Amy Overbeck, editor of The Biggest Little Farm. Whether you're working from home or in your facility, your media has to be secure, organized, and accessible by your whole team. Studio Network Solutions Evo shared storage servers now include Nomad, an easy-to-use utility to help media production teams work from home, on the road, or anywhere in the world. Evo shared storage servers provide ultra-fast performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing. Each Evo comes with built-in media asset management software, so you can easily search, tag, and preview all your storage. Evo also features backup and sync tools, so you always know your media and projects are protected, plus powerful integrations to improve your workflows in Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid Media Composer, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off a new Evo system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo today. And now, back to my interview with Amy Overbeck, the editor of The Biggest Little Farm. What was your first cut like, the assembly? How long was it? It actually wasn't all that long. I, I want to say it was maybe around two hours. If I'm remembering correctly, I think it was two hours. We were really disciplined about it. We brought in um, Mark Monroe, who's um, you know worked on The Cove and Icarus, a lot of really well-known docs. And he really worked to keep us in line, I think, a lot. He was very adamant that we needed to keep to 90 minutes or less. And that, you know, we needed to get to Alan within like 10 minutes of the film. So he had all of these kind of goals throughout of where we should be at a certain time into the film. And that really helped to keep us disciplined. And John is a very disciplined storyteller, I think, too. He doesn't want people to feel bored and he doesn't, you know, he wants to get on with the story. So um, I think all of those things kind of came together to, to help make a really like efficient cut. Um, did you guys do any kind of graphing of moods when you're doing your structure of your scenes? Like, okay, we want to have a happy scene and then there'll be a sad scene or a dramatic scene and then happy again. Tell me a little bit about that. We did that a couple of times, especially with act two. You know, we were conscious of the fact that we were really going through a roller coaster with, with the ups and downs of the farm you know, it's funny because this film is maybe a little bit unique in its subject because on a farm, you can have something terrible happening and something really amazing happening simultaneously on this farm. So it kind of gave us the freedom to do a little bit of that jumping around in emotions of like, here's something terrible, but what about this over here? You know, and it was interesting to, to see how quickly we could go between emotions and still have it work. We didn't want to stick to any theory necessarily just for the sake of doing it. You know, it needed to feel right for the film. And so we just kept playing with it to, to see where the emotions were going to hang the best. And did that also play into pacing that, you know, after a particularly sad scene or something that you would give the audience a chance to breathe with some beautiful pastoral shot or something? That's the way it seemed to me. Uh, yeah, hindsight. sure. I mean, sections that were dense in information, we wanted to do that as like a, we almost call them meditative moments. You know, you needed a moment to, to digest it and to almost experience what you just heard for yourself. 
you know, whether it's hummingbirds returning to the pond or like with Alan's death, there was a lot going on on the farm, but we needed to, you know, pay respect to his passing. So, you know, we gave it some breath there, but then we kind of like eased into more like metaphorical ideas of his passing and how. So we use like watching an orphaned lamb being like a metaphor for John and Molly being left alone from Alan. So it seems like you're moving on to a new subject, but you're kind of still processing the news. I think we're able to kind of achieve a seamless transition out of that where it just kind of flows into the next thing without you really realizing it, but still giving it its its due. There's a section where Todd, the dog, is soaking in the nature of the farm. It's right at the halfway mark. Uh, any reason were you trying to get that to that then? Was that one of those milestones that you were given to, to hit? Well, we were really using him as an example of how John learned to see the farm differently. Like he learned to sit back and observe things. You know, he said, look at Todd. You know, Todd is, you know, just taking in the whole world around him and he's able to see all these things because he's open to seeing them. And so um, we were really using that as like his his teaching moment to John. So it had to come at a point where, you know, we're about to see this like ripple of of things that he figured out solutions for on the farm because Todd taught him this way of seeing. So that was the use of, the, of that. We went back and forth as to whether to use it in that way, but ultimately it felt like the best way of describing what this new way that John had decided to approach things. Uh, I'm trying to remember this this idea, Greasy's new um, home story completely manufactured like a nature documentary. Uh, I don't even remember why I wrote that down. What does that mean? <laughs> well, that scene um, is, Greasy's the chicken that lives with Emma. Oh, that's right. And so um, we really just let that scene play out by itself rather than trying to explain what's happening or anything like that. So we just like let it be. And, and the great thing about that is that it makes it very universal, whether it's, you know, kids can pick up on what's happening there, um, people that speak different languages. You know, I went to a screening in Berlin and everyone's laughing at the same moment. You know, you're all just able to understand what's happening there. So some of the things can just speak for themselves and, and um, just be punctuated by music it's something I really had to learn in the process of making this film was how to tell those kind of stories. I never really realized how intricate the little turns of the head or the, you know, all those little body language things that goes into telling an animal story are so important. There are many times where I thought I had a great edit and John would come in and say, well, you just need, you know, him looking this way instead of, you know, just jumping right to this. And then I would put that in and it would just make a world of difference in communicating like what was happening in the scene. But for the average editor, it's not always so apparent, like what needs to be done there. So it's sure. definitely a learning process. Yeah, that's a great thought of just kind of freeing yourself of the ego of needing to come up with the solution, right? That you can, someone else can provide that and you just go, oh, great idea. Let's do it. Yeah. And you, you maybe don't even realize that it's not, speaking everything that you wanted it to you know sometimes as editors we get so into our edit that we're like loving it too much and somebody comes in and can rip it apart so it's yeah I think it's just one of those things especially with this that I knew that he was the master of how to tell these animal stories and you know I don't understand all the little noises and everything that 
each animal makes that are significant and um it's amazing the next level that it can take it to when you know how to tell those stories right yeah well i was thinking like i've seen so many nature documentaries and you know that they're manufactured you have to know you know if you're watching a hawk up in a tree and then there's a fish that's in the water and they start to build the fact that the hawk is going to come down and get the fish that it's not the way it was you know I mean, so the beauty of of telling nature stories, though, is there's so much repetitive action. So you have so many chances to capture these actions of the animals. So like Greasy going to sleep with Emma, they saw that he had been doing that every night. They would watch him when they didn't have cameras. And they said, you know, this chicken does this. The footage that we used for that scene was from two or three different nights worth of footage. But he did the same thing every night. So it gives you multiple chances, multiple angles. And that's the way it was with so many stories on the farm is, you know, we have so many amazing shots because we were able to shoot it so many different ways. It's not that we had 12 cameras on them. Yeah, that makes complete sense. But of course, when I watched that, because it's the way you told the story, I literally thought they had a camera on the first time that he ever did it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Definitely. I mean, that's the amazing thing about it, right? But, you know, I don't think it really takes away the magic too much to know that because it maybe is even cooler that they did that every night. It is kind of cooler that they did that every night. It's very much the truth of it. And so that's why we have so much of the footage that we have is because so many things just happen over and over and over. Uh, There's a very funny, uh, I call them an answer cut of Greasy and the second Emma pregnancy. Can you guess what colors the babies will be? Can Can you tell me about that? Because that is a funny moment and it's all in editing. It's, it's a great moment. I, I believe it was John's idea. I have to give him credit for that one. Well, explain, we were, explain what I'm talking about, what the issue was, and why it's funny to the, somebody who's not seen the film. So um, Greasy the Chicken has befriended uh, Emma the Pig, and they've spent a bit of time together, but Emma's pregnant. And so the joke is that Greasy's the nervous boyfriend and um, Emma's about to have all these pigs. And so um, John, I think, is putting up a picture of Emma and Greasy hanging out together inside of Emma's hut and he says I wonder what color the babies are going to be or something because the first time Emma's babies were all different colors they were like white and pink and black and everything but this time all of her pigs come out red and Greasy the chicken is red so (laughs) pretty funny and they actually had people in Q&A's for the film asking if how is a chicken the father of piglets (laughs) Um, some people couldn't wrap their head around that one, <laughs> but it was a great solution to the problem because, you know, this was Emma's second pregnancy and the first pregnancy, we really lived through the labor with her, right? And she's popping out 17 piglets and we didn't want to have a repeat scene. We didn't want to have to live through a whole other pig labor. It wasn't necessary. That wasn't where the story was. And the first time that was where the story was. So with this one, we just wanted to cut to the chase you know that she's pregnant, boom, here's the piglets, and they're running out of the house with her. So it just helped us to move forward in that story without showing something everyone knows happened anyways. There's another really interesting editing moment that I really liked, and I hate to kind of give away this thing, but there's a very violent thing that happens with Greasy, and it's indicated with a very violent camera move. Um, And I remember I talked to a guy that's a Hong Kong, like a kind of karate Hong Kong action editor. And he said that he needed to amp up the action of some scene. And there was a scene where the the 
Steadicam operator tripped and fell, and he used the footage of the falling camera from this tripping Steadicam operator in the footage to make a violent moment. And you kind wow. of did that similar with Greasy. Do you uh, want me to give away how it happens? Or I, I, I'm interested in one um, one thing that that struck me was you said somebody's given you these fat cuts of the best moments. And you'd think that something like that, like the, that action moment of a camera kind of not pointing at anything would have been cut out of those fat cuts. You wouldn't have even known that it existed. Right. So the fat cuts are essentially trimmed down to like what's usable. But the iPhone footage is not in fat cut. But I will say that there are plenty of shots in the film that I would match frame back to the source and just see like, well, what is, else is here? Um, because, you know, sometimes the assistant editors are a little too close with their cuts, but other times, you know, they included the whole shot, so it doesn't matter. Um, so I'd always kind of explore the options when I would find a sh shot I like just to make sure I have my in and out right. But with the iPhone footage, we didn't come up with a great system for organizing that because we didn't want it to all be mixed in with the Amira stuff and the F55. Um, so we just had those organized by person and they were just clips. So I would just you know, look at the thumbnails and find the one I needed in John's folder, bring it up and I could choose whatever I wanted. So with that one, I just felt like, you know, we know that it's iPhone footage because he's talking from behind the camera and it's pretty obvious. Um, and he had a flashlight that he was shining at the same time. And so there was this moment where he went to like stop recording and the flashlight and the phone just kind of did a thing. And I just felt like it really helped to show his frustration in that moment. Again, you know, we're all very used to seeing iPhone footage now and the person holding it is is a, is a part of that too. And, and, you know, if you know that they're feeling a certain way and then you see the camera do this violent thing, you know, you can kind of sense how they're feeling. So it felt like an important way to do it. And it allowed us to break away from the iPhone footage and then go to a beautiful scene of stars at night and have a more reflective moment and kind of let the audience know we're getting out of this now. So it, it kind of served two purposes there. Another place that I was struck with the pacing of it was uh, the couple that created this farm has a baby, and then you see the change of age of that child rather quickly throughout. Can you kind of talk to me about pacing that out and determining how much you were going to show of this child growing up? Yeah, well, that was tricky, too, because it's John's son. It's the director's son. So he was very sensitive of trying not to show off his son too much because as much <laughs> as he thought all the stuff was cute, you know, he didn't want it to seem like, okay, we get it. Your son's super cute. He, he wanted to just kind of like let him grow up already and move things forward. I thought we had lots of cute stuff that we left on the table, but <laughs> he's pretty cute. But yeah, we just had to kind of fast forward it because we were at a point in the story where, you know, we were heading towards the ending and we, we knew that we only had people for so long and we wanted to show them that this was going somewhere fast now. Like we were going to speed along and really like show you the big milestone moments. So it just kind of served to propel us forward to an even more magical time in the farm where everything is just completely working together. Um, because shortly before that, we had shown how all the wildlife came back to help. Spoiler alert. And so, yeah, you're just showing that, yes, there is quite a bit of time here that passed. Now we're, you know, going to fast forward and, and show you the 
get towards the ending here <laughs> because we knew we had kind of multiple endings that we were working with, but they were all great scenes. So we wanted to be judicious with them and, and show people that we're trying to wrap it up, but we have some great moments for you. So that's kind of where we were with that. And, and it was a big, that scene was also a big moment of kind of passing the torch from Todd to their son, as far as like the main motivator in their life. Um, so it was really an important scene. It was a big moment in the film and a pretty emotional one for us, even just watching it back ourselves. So it was, it was pretty important. I don't want to draw the curtain back too severely on the manufacture of a documentary, but could you talk to me a little bit about, because to me it felt so real that there's the birth of the sun is compared and contrasted to the birth of a calf. Is that something you guys thought, oh, we should do that? Because they didn't happen simultaneously. No, they didn't happen simultaneously. We were trying to find a way to bring their son into the environment without really breaking away from our primary farm story too much, kind of keeping it centered on the farm. And we had this great scene where, you know, the crew was gathered around and really excited for this cow birth. And John was assisting the cow in giving birth. And we felt like we could kind of double duty it in that, you know, we hadn't seen John help a cow give birth. We saw him with the piglets, but that was like very early and easy stuff. He was just cleaning off piglets or whatever. But with this scene, he was pulling a calf out of a cow. And so it really shows his progression as a farmer. And then you have this joyful scene with the crew gathered around and so excited for the baby calf. So it moves that excitement into the birth of their son, even though they didn't have a crowd gathered around for the birth of their son, it kind of helps amp up that moment. And then we are, we're also cutting to shots of the newborn in between shots of, you know, new lambs and things like that. So we're very much like orienting him in this ecosystem he was born into. So yeah, it kind of helped everything flow without having to have a whole bunch of lead up of Molly going to the hospital or something like that. You knew that she was pregnant before that. You see this calf scene and then she has a new baby. So it <laughs> felt right. <laughs> but not a new baby calf. She has a new baby child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we don't need to explain how the, the mom gives birth to a calf to, to the uh, test audience. Like, you had to do with the with the chicken yeah. and the pig. <laughs> That's hysterical exactly. that somebody would ask that question. Shows how good the that worked, the joke worked, that people... I know, so it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the farm, they made uh, T-shirts with a drawing of Greasy that says, I'm not the father. <laughs> 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 That's very funny. They need to have a Maury Povich thing where he gets tested totally. or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> anything else that you want to tell me about the making or editing of this film, like the uh, the process or um, the difficulties? As far as the process, it was just so unique in that I was editing in a barn a renovated barn, a very nice barn, but in a barn in the middle of the farm. And, you know, I could look out my window and see, you know, sheep being moved between pastures or whatever. And to be living in the environment that you're telling the story about, you know, I'm a big fan of remote editing, but it was pretty amazing experience. And to understand your subject so fully, I mean, I went through a huge learning curve. I had to learn about regenerative farming and and all of that to help tell the story. I had known John and Molly for 15 years from before they ever went to California, but you know, I had this new part of their life now that I had to help 
tell. And it took a lot to understand all the intricacies of what he wanted to tell in his story. And when I first got there, he actually had me go out and do livestock chores with the livestock team. And I was going to rotate between all the departments and everything just so I could understand the farm more fully. So I was doing that like one morning a week. But then I was helping hammer in electric temporary fencing. I came back and like my hands were shaking and red. And I was like, I don't know if I can edit. Um, so he was like, that's it. No more. No more chores. So they had to, to cut me off from that. But yeah, it was just a really, really unique experience. And, you know, if he was trying to explain something to me, he could take me out in the pasture and show me the soil or whatever it was. So it was it was really special. Or you would come in with a baby lamb and say, here, can you watch this for a second and then leave? <laughs> you know, so it was, it was a really unique situation there. Were you able to, since you had a great cinematographer available to you and you had the actual locations, were you able to say, I really need this? Yeah. So especially for scenery, trying to set up a scene, like we would do like drone shots going over to like Emma's location on the farm and things like that um, at a certain time of day. We did a bit of that kind of pickup shots that we just felt like we needed to orient ourselves in the farm. That was most of the shots um, we would do. Or sometimes where we just felt like we were lacking in story in a certain thing. So we would have someone go shoot cow patties until we got the right shots of the flies, you know. <laughs> you know, there, there are quite a few things like that. Or I was able to articulate, I think we need a certain angle with this setup in this way so that it's going to orient people that this is the same scene that we're trying to get into. Um, and it was nice I could go out in the field with them and, and help figure out how exactly it was we should shoot it to have it mesh with what I already had in the edit. A lot of editors will, who are on feature films will say, I don't want to be on the set because I don't want to be influenced by my relationships with the actors, my understanding of the geography of the set. I don't want to see any of that stuff. And yet you were completely immersed and knew the subjects very intimately. How did that affect your storytelling as an editor? It's interesting because I didn't realize how much it would affect it. But as time went on, um, I definitely got more in tune with the farm and, and the location of things was a big thing to kind of wrap your head around and how the farm works in general. So it made a huge difference, I think. I think it's different probably than being on a set because a set you're kind of lifting the curtain, right? And it's things that the audience wouldn't otherwise understand about things. But when it's a real story and a documentary, you need to be in tune with it. And I don't know that I would have been able to get so in tune with it if I wasn't there to begin with. I think now I've been working remotely with them for a while now. And I think now that I know the farm so well, it's actually pretty easy to be remote because I know where everything is there. I know how things work. So it's much easier, but it took a while to get oriented to all of that and understanding how they rotated the animals and how the seasons changed things on the farm. There, there's a lot to understand there. And every, every season it was like relearning it too. The end part with the fires, the pacing of that and trying to kind of wrap things up, as you said, with the birth of the child, you, you need to get things wrapped up and finished. Uh, tell me about kind of that last section of dealing with the fires. Well, we struggled with how to wrap up the fires. Um, at first, we were doing it in more of like an epilogue form, some text on screen at the end before the credits. And it just wasn't feeling like enough. It was feeling like too much of a throwaway when it was a really big event on the farm. 
So we brought it back into the third act and it was a struggle to figure out how do we do this briefly enough, but also give it its due. And so we brought in a few new beats that you hadn't seen in the opening of the film to make it fresh. So the trailer fire, and now you um, see that when Molly's running around the house, she also has her son there that she's trying to evacuate with. Some things like that, that that bring more gravity to the situation than you knew from the beginning of the film. But still, we're trying to get through this efficiently. And we know that people have a sense of this scene already from the top of the film. So we just kind of want to remind them of the scene, give these few new beats. And then the funny thing about fire season there is you can be under siege for weeks at a time. And then all of a sudden the winds die down or fire's just done. And, and it just goes away just like that. And so the way that we got out of that scene was, you know, very much the reality of the situation is just one day you can go home and they were excited and relieved and, you know, had this moment of just laughing about how ridiculous they were when they were packing up to evacuate. And it was just like a sigh of relief that kind of helps propel you into the more joyous ending you're about to get into. So when we were doing it, we were struggling with how to get out of it and how to explain the fires going away for people that don't know how it goes. But ultimately, we just had to say it how it is and, and hope that people would be on board for how a fire wraps up is maybe not how you'd expect. It was true to the experience. <laughs> and scary for you, I would think, because you did evacuate, right, with your... I, I a mile off of the farm and I stayed home with the computer. We had our bags all packed, but we didn't actually evacuate ourselves. We kind of didn't know where to go, to be honest. And we we had our walkie-talkie from the farm with people that were keeping an eye out so we could hear if they saw something coming. We had our neighbors all keeping each other informed. And so, yeah, we just um, waited. But I could see the Thomas fire every night from my living room burning on the mountain. And one time I called the farm because it was in the same direction of the farm. And I said, I think your house, there's a tree on fire by your house. But it was just at night, the flames on the mountain look so much closer. And the Thomas fire at one point just really wasn't actually blowing in our direction, but it was right there in our vision. So the ones that were coming at us were the ones we couldn't see. So it, it was a scary time for sure. I mean, I really made it even more so that I was experiencing <laughs> everything that we were telling on the farm besides the rough early, early years, which I fortunately wasn't there for. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. It's been a joy to talk to you. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be a part of this and I'm flattered. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Amy Overback. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. Then be sure to spread the word and tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.